Well, we are smack dab in the middle of our series, Atonement, where we're talking about why Jesus died, and more specifically, why Jesus had to die. And I told you from the beginning, the five-second version and the five-year-old version of the answer to that question is Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. But while that's a beautiful and true answer, that just scratches the surface of what happened when Jesus died on the cross. So here's the starting point we've been looking at this whole series. Jesus died to undo everything that sin has done to you. Jesus died to undo everything that sin has done to you. And last week, we began looking at how Jesus' death undid everything that sin has done to you. We looked at the idea of Christ, Christus Victor or Christ Victorious, that Jesus won a victory for you that you could never win for you. He defeated death and sin and disarmed and exposed every power opposed to God and opposed to you knowing God. And because of Jesus's victory, we are now rescued and redeemed and reconciled to God. Now, last week, I, I, as, as we began to talk about that, as I told you that at the cross, three things happened that make up the atonement. I told you that there was a victory that was won. There was a debt that was paid and a sacrifice that was made. And today we move to talk about the debt that was paid. And last week, as I talked about that, I, I left a little bit of a bread trail, a breadcrumb trail leading to this week. And last week I said something as I was talking about being rescued and redeemed from sin that was a bit of a teaser and lead into this week. And it was this, that while sin works to enslave and control and harm and break and destroy and devour us, sin can't do anything to us if we don't choose sin in the first place. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That, that, that as bad as sin is and as easy as it has been to kind of point the finger and oh, sin does all this and sin does all this, unfortunately for all of us, what we know to be true and what we may not want to realize as we talk about this is that sin can't do anything to us if we don't choose sin in the first place. It can't do any of that. It can't break us. It can't harm us. It can't destroy us. It can't enslave us. It can't control us if we don't let it into our lives in the first place. Sin can only control because we've chosen sin. Sin can only control and enslave because we've chosen sin. Sin can only break and destroy because we've chosen sin. Sin can only throw us in prison and lock the door if we, when we choose sin. Sin can only separate us from God when we choose sin. And the question then becomes, as, as we look to these next couple of weeks, as we look to today specifically and the debt that was paid, the question becomes, what have we made ourselves by choosing sin? Not what has sin done to us because we chose sin, but what have we done to ourselves when we choose sin? What, what happens to us? What do we do to ourselves every time we choose to sin? What do we deserve for choosing to sin against God, for choosing anything less than God? What do we deserve for choosing anything less than God as the focal point of our lives? What do we deserve for choosing to think anything less than God has the answers for life or anything less than God will satisfy us in life? What do we, what do we deserve for choosing to give anything less than God our attention and devotion? What do we get, what do we deserve from God for failing to follow God's plan and purpose for our life? What do we deserve for failing to follow God's instructions and commands for the best and for the rest of our lives? And the simple one word answer is what do we deserve? What do we make ourselves? Where do we stand in relationship to God when we choose sin? What is it that we have brought on ourselves? What do we make ourselves? And the simple one word answer is the word guilty. Guilty. 
Isn't that fun? Every single one of us, by choosing sin, we have made ourselves guilty. What do we deserve from God? We deserve our guilt. And I know your argument, and I know like my argument, like I tend to do, is I tend to look around at other people, and you tend to look at other people, and you can always find someone who you view as more guilty than you, who their behavior is worse than yours. Their, their sin is worse than yours. And so you look at them and you go, well, I'm better than them. I don't sin that bad. I sin small. I tell little white lies, not big, huge lies. I flirt. I don't pursue affairs. I might mistake, make a mistake here and there, but I'm a pretty good person and I go to church most Sundays and I read my Bible most days and I try to pray. So I'm doing pretty good. I'm not guilty. And here's the truth. There may be varying degrees of good, but there's not varying degrees of guilt. When it comes to guilt, there's only guilty and not guilty. And all of us are guilty. All of us from Adam and Eve, whose sin was a failure to fully and completely obey God's plan and purpose to every person that you have ever known to the worst of sinners, to the people who seemingly have it all together, but you know they've made some mistakes here and there along the way to you yourself, all are guilty. This is what Romans chapter three says about us starting in verse nine. It says, so what then? Are we any better off? This is for all the people who looked around and compared. This was in that day for the Jews who had the law, the people of a, of a faith background that seemed to seamlessly blend into Jesus to those who are you know, looking around comparing to the Gentiles who didn't have the same background. It says, what then? Are we any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Here's the truth. We all stand guilty before God. You stand guilty before God. I stand guilty before God. Because I've chosen a single sin, because you've chosen a single sin, and let's be honest, we know it's not a single sin. We know throughout the course of our lives, we have over and over and over and over again chosen sin, chosen less than God, chosen to give God anything less than God, our attention, our devotion, chosen to follow other the instructions of the world rather than the instructions of God, chosen to live by our own way rather than the way of God. And every time we do that, we choose sin. And when we choose sin, we are all stand guilty before God, meaning you before Jesus, apart from Jesus, you stand guilty before God. Your sin makes you guilty before God. And guilt every single time, whether it's guilt in a relation, a human relationship, guilt in a workplace relationship, or guilt in our relationship with God, guilt always creates a debt-and-debtor relationship, a debt-to-debtor relationship. Guilt always creates a debt-to-debtor relationship. The idea that because of what I have done, I owe you something, that you deserve better from me, you deserve you know, the truth from me, you deserve my best work effort, you deserve that, and because I didn't give it, I'm guilty, and therefore I owe you. Guilt, in other words, guilt creates a gap in any relationship, and our relationship with God is no different. See, financially, debt is the difference between what you can pay today and what 
what the seller is owed in total. If you have $40 today, but you want to purchase something that costs $200, if you give them everything you've got toward the purchase today and make a transaction and an agreement to walk out with the item, how much you've walked out with the item, but how much debt did you walk out of the store with? You walked out of the store with $160, or let's be honest, there's some, gonna be some interest on that, so probably more like $200 of debt. You have walked out with debt, and debt is the difference between what you can provide and what they are owed, between what you can provide and what they deserve. That's the difference, that's what debt is. And here's the gap created by our sin against God. Our debt is the difference between what God deserves and what we have given to him. The difference between what God is owed in our attention, in our devotion, in our followership, in he knows what's best, so I should follow it. Just, just because I believe he knows what's best, just because I believe he created it all and set it all in motion, he knows what's best. He should have my un, un, unrequited like followership and obedience and, 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 and set, like everything I have should go to him. That that's what he deserves. That's what he is owed. And our debt is the difference between what God deserves and what we have actually given to him. The behavior, the attention, the devotion, the followership, the obedience that God deserves and the obedience that we've actually given. The followership that he deserves and the following that we've actually given. The, the attention that he deserves and the attention that we've actually given. Every time we fail to follow what God would have for us, it's sin and it creates a debt. And the question that then, then becomes, because this sounds, this sounds heavy that we owe God, that we deserve, that God deserves more from us. And, be, and because God deserves more from us than we've ever given to him or ever will give to, give to him, there's a gap. And the question becomes, what could God put in that gap? For, for humanity who, who should give God better than, than, than we've given God, what could God put in the gap? Maybe what should God put in the gap? If life is fair, if God is just, what should God or what could God put in that gap between what he is owed and what he deserves and what we've given him? I think there's a couple things that we naturally go to if we think that God would be fair. If God's fair, God would put could put judgment in there. He could put his anger in there. He could put punishment in there. And I think along those lines, we think of all of those three things kind of Kind of the same that in in in, a, in the Old Testament, God showed a lot of judgments. At times, showed what what was perceived as anger, what was perceived as punishment, allowing things to happen to those who had walked away from Him in response to their walking to walking away from Him. That God punished them, that God was angry with them, that God was judging them. And this idea of judgment, it comes across all throughout the Old Testament scriptures that from Noah and from, from Adam and Eve, when they sinned and the judgment that, that sent them out of the Garden of Eden, from Noah and the flood waters to God judging the, wor the world and, and starting afresh with Noah and his family, to God judging the nation of Egypt and sending the 10 plagues, and which can certainly be perceived as anger and punishment against the nation of Egypt for enslaving his people, all through through, through, through the exile and, the, and, the, and what happened in the book of Judges and the exile, what happened in the later kingdom of Israel. All throughout there, you can look and go, see, they got what they deserved because God didn't get what he deserved. God gave them what they now deserve. He gave them his anger. He gave them judgment. He gave them punishment. And I think one thing that maybe we could say that we could put in here is that maybe God would create a payment plan. 
You know, like, hey, like, like, like if you go to a store and you can't afford and you, and you want to buy it on credit, you have a payment plan. And God's payment plan, if he's like, hey, you know what, I want to give you an opportunity to work this off. I'm going to, I'm going to figure out something that's fair so that you can work this off. He's going to come up with a payment plan where each good deed earns a point, And hopefully you get enough points to make up the difference before you die. So what good, what could God put in that gap? He could put judgment, anger, punishment, or a payment plan. And in every single one of those, that would be God doing what is fair. Fair is in our world, in our understanding of fair, is fair is you do the crime, you do the time, right? So fair would be, well, the wages of sin is death. So when you sin, you die immediately. That's the stated and declared consequence of sin. So every time you sin, you die. That would be fair. Does that sound fair to you? You're like, I don't think that sounds fair. That would be the fairness of God, that the wages of sin is death. He put it in writing. It's in the code. You sin, you die. Like, I don't really think I want fair. Fair is an eye for an eye. So fair would be that when we abandon God, God abandons us. Fair would be when I hurt someone God loves, God hurts someone I love. Fair would be when I break my promise to God, God breaks his promises to me. And I just want to let you know, if you're like, whoa, 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 that sounds terrible. None of us want fair from God. None of us want God to do what is fair because fair is an eye for an eye. Fair is you do the crime, you do the time. This is not what we want. That's what was fair. None of us want fair from God. At the same time, at the same time, we certainly hope that God is just. Otherwise, the whole thing has no meaning. And if God is just, and if God is just, someone and something still has to satisfy the gap, something has to fill the gap and pay the debt for us to know God and to have a con connection with God and be brought back into relationship with God. We stand apart from God. We stand with a gap before God. We stand with a debt before God, owing God better and owing God more than what we have ever given to him and ever could give, give to him. God deserves, God needs to be repaid for his justice to be satisfied. The question then becomes, okay, well, that's what, what God could put in the gap, but obviously we hope he certainly doesn't. What do we oftentimes try to put in the gap? How do we try to make up for it? And the answer to that is we try to do all the things that, that we just said. We try to make a point system. And our point system can be a couple things. It can be our human effort. You know, that I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be better. I'm going to be better. I'm going to do, oh man, I didn't do better. Oh man, like my human effort, it always falls short because let's be honest, we're all human. Our effort always falls short. And, there, and, and, and no matter how much effort we put in, we can't really make up for what we've done wrong. Getting it right this time doesn't make up for what I did wrong last time. That just means this time I met the standard. I met the standard of God. My effort falls short. The rules, the, ru the rules, maybe we try, like, I'm going to follow the rules. So it's not about my effort to just be good. I'm going to do everything I can to follow the rules. If you're like, I'm going to live by the rules, you better follow every single one. If that's going to be your attempt to make it up to God, to pay the debt that God is owed, to like, you, you better be perfect. And you're like, well, that sounds an awful lot like an impossible task. It is an impossible task. And so the rules don't work. We try religion. 
We try religion, so I'm going to show up to church every Sunday. I'm going to show up to church online every Sunday. I'm going to read my Bible for an hour every day. I'm going to spend an hour in prayer every day, thinking that if I do that, that's going to pay God off. That's going to give God what God deserves. And what's true about you is God does deserve the best of your time. God does deserve your attention in prayer. God does deserve your devotion in in Bible study. God does want you in church. That's all good things. But thinking that that's what connects me to God, and that's what makes me right before God, not my sin in the other 22 hours of the day, like that, 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 that this somehow makes up for that, it just doesn't work. It doesn't play out. That's what we try to put in the gap. And let me just tell you what I know. And here's what's true about all of this. We try to fill a spiritual gap with worldly solutions. We try to fill a God-sized spiritual gap in our lives, a God-sized debt. We try to pay off a God-sized spiritual debt with earthly, worldly solutions. And I just want to make sure we understand this. All of the worldly solutions and all of the human effort in the world cannot and will not and never will fill the gap or pay the debt to satisfy the justice of God. And so the question becomes, if what we think God would put in the, in the gap is something that we would never want in the gap, and if what we try to put in the gap is something that does not work to fill and bridge the gap, The question then becomes, what did God put in the gap? What did God put in the gap? Because God is just, whatever goes into that gap must be two things. It must be perfect and it must be powerful. It must be perfect and it must be powerful. Perfect meaning sinless, holy, righteous. Anything less than that would be more of the same that had created the gap in the first place. Anything less would still not measure up. It must be perfect. Whatever or whoever God put in the gap, it must be perfect. And it must be powerful, meaning strong enough and able to actually bridge the gap strong enough and actually able to bridge the gap between us and God. So again, what did God put in the gap? God placed Jesus in the gap. God placed Jesus in the gap. That Jesus' death on the cross served to fill and bridge the gap between us and God, between what God deserves and what we have given God. God placed Jesus in the gap to pay the debt that we could never pay. In Isaiah 53, 4, verse 6, there's two two passages of Scripture that really, really, really speak to this in in the most unmistakable ways. One is in the Old Testament, an Old Testament prophet named Isaiah, looking forward to what God would someday do through Jesus. He wrote this in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Isaiah, 600 years before Jesus would walk the earth. 
God speaks to him and God speaks through him and he records these words looking into the future of what the servant son of God, the Messiah, would one day do for all of humanity for the, to fill in the debt and to take the consequence of sin, to, to fill the, the, the gap and the debt of what we have created when, when we give God less than what God deserves from us, to satisfy the justice of God. He says, God would have to send one to be a, a substitute, one who could stand in the gap and, and fulfill the debt that we have created between us and God. And he said, there would one day be a savior. There would one day be a suffering servant who would go and take on us, on himself, what we deserved. And then in Romans chapter three, after Jesus had gone to the cross, Paul, looking back at what Jesus had done, he writes this in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and the following. He said, but now, but now, after spending a whole bunch of time talking about, here's what we have been, here's where we have been. And this is immediately following the passage of scripture that says, there is no one righteous, not even one. He says, but now, God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. Meaning all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the prophets, all throughout the scriptures, God has pointed to the day where there would be one who, where a way to be made righteous with God without fulfilling the works of the, of the law, what was required in the law, the commands of the law. He says, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Are. And then he says this, for everyone has sinned. He reminds us that we are all guilty. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. He says, all have sinned. All are guilty without Jesus. Apart from Jesus, we know all have sinned. Like we know that. We know that even with Jesus in the picture, we all have sinned. But short of Jesus, all of us still stand guilty. He says God's grace displayed through Jesus freely makes us right with God. Freely, meaning there's nothing you have done or nothing you could do. It is made available to you for free for you but freely carries a, a, a weight here because for it to be free for you, it would come at a great cost to the son of God. See, there's another word that carries a lot of weight here and it's the word penalty. Penalty carries a lot of weight, meaning in our human understanding, when justice is served, for justice to be served, when there is a wrong, a penalty must be paid or served to make things right. Paul wrote that God, through Jesus's death, he paid the price. He took the penalty. He fulfilled the debt. And in doing so, he has freed us from the penalty that we owed. And how did he do that? In verse 25 and 26. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin, not a sacrifice for sin, meaning someone would have to come along later and make a sacrifice, but the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, 
For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Again, what we know of early church history and what we believe about the death of Jesus is that by 6 p.m. on Good Friday, the world had become a different place, a shift in the, in the way the whole world works and the way we relate to God, an entirely d- different way of interacting with God had begun. And it began with the work of Jesus on the cross because Jesus' sacrifice serves as a substitute for anyone who accepts it. This forms the heart of what is known as substitutionary atonement, that Jesus' sacrifice serves as a substitute for anyone who accepts it. A substitute for the debt that we owe, a substitute for the consequence that we deserve, a substitute for the penalty that must be paid, a substitute for the price that must be paid. And Jesus' death on the cross served as the substitute for what we deserve, for what we have given God less than what he deserves. So we do owe a penalty. For our sin, we do owe a penalty. Jesus took our place on the cross and paid the penalty. We do owe a debt to God. God does deserve better and more than we have ever given to him. We do owe a debt, but Jesus took our place and paid the debt and he paid it all. We do have a gap between ourselves and God. And Jesus did what we couldn't do for ourselves and he bridged the gap. The amazing truth of this substitutionary atonement, this debt that was paid, is that perfect Jesus got what sinful people deserve so that sinful people can get what perfect Jesus deserves. In the gap, we said God must put someone who is perfect and someone who is powerful, someone who is sinless, someone who is righteous, someone who is holy, and he placed Jesus in the gap. He must put someone who's powerful, someone who is able to bridge the gap so that we could come into close proximity with our Heavenly Father once again. He put Jesus, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, who is also the powerful Son of God, come to earth, who would perform miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle so that we could see the power of God at work in our lives. And then he did what what could not be imagined. He overcame death hell, sin, and the grave, and rose to new life. And because of that, perfect Jesus got what sinful people deserve so that sinful people can get what perfect Jesus deserves. This is what we know in, in, in biblical terms as the great exchange. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul explains this great exchange. And, and this scripture tells us what we are now because of what Jesus took for us because of the penalty he paid for us at the cross, because of the debt that he paid for us at the cross. What we are now because we accept what Jesus did for us. In 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has accepted, if anyone has identified, if anyone is following Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. The debt has passed away. The penalty that we owe is passed away. All of our works in the old life has passed away and see the new has come. That's what should be true of you if you are in Christ. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, 
God was reconciling the world to himself. That's that word we used last week. He was bringing us into proximity. And how was he bringing us into proximity? Despite the fact that we had created a gap, he sent someone who could bridge the gap for us so that we could walk right into his presence. Reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. He made, verse 21, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus paid our debt. Jesus took our penalty. Jesus took what we deserved so that we could get what Jesus deserves. And because Jesus paid our debt at the heart of substitutionary atonement, Jesus paid our debt. Jesus took our penalty. Jesus took what we deserved so we could get what Jesus deserves. And because Jesus did that for us, we are now three things. Right at the end of that passage in verse 20 said, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness means right standing. We are standing in right, we are given right standing with God. When God looks at us, meaning he doesn't see our sin, he sees Jesus. We are in him. We are in him. In him means when God looks at Jesus, he sees Jesus, he looks at us, he has to look through Jesus to see us. We look through, Je he looks through Jesus's righteousness, Jesus's sinlessness, Jesus's right standing to see us. And because we're in Jesus, we receive right standing from God. We are viewed as righteous in right, brought back into right relationship with God because of Jesus going to the cross and paying our debt and taking our, the penalty that we owed. We are given righteousness. We are allowed to stand in the righteousness of God. Meaning today, you, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you are living under in, in the sacrifice that Jesus made for you and the pay, price that was paid for you, you have received righteousness. That does not mean that you're always going to get things right, but that does mean that when you get them wrong, you stand in the love and the grace of Jesus who has given you his righteousness. And when you stand in him, you have righteousness that you have not earned, but has been given to you. And because of that, you are in right standing with God. Not only were you given righteousness, you were given access to God. In it, we're, we're, we're told that we're brought back in, we're, we're, the, the bridge has been, God has reconciled us. He's made the way for us to be reconciled to him. In Romans chapter five, verse one and two, it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We have obtained access through him by faith into this grace. And Ephesians chapter two, verse 16 through 18 says this, he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put, to ho put to the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
We have access because of what Jesus did for us at the cross, because Jesus took the penalty that we, that we owed, because Jesus paid the debt that we owed. Now we have, and now you have, and now I have access to the Father. If you've ever wondered if you can be in the presence of God now, you can be in the presence of God because of what Jesus did before you, because your debt was paid, because your penalty was paid, because what you deserve has been dealt with at the cross, has been finished at the cross, and finally you are given new life. This is so interesting. Paul, in describing what happened at the cross and what happened because of Jesus' death, says because of Jesus' death, you're actually given new life. Before he talks about Jesus coming out of the grave with resurrection life, he says Jesus' death actually brought you life. In verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Our old died with Jesus at the cross. And who we are now today is the new that has come as a result of our old dying at the cross. And that when Jesus came out of the grave, he brought new life for you. And when you stand with him, and when you stand in him, the old died at the cross. And the new came out of the grave for you. You, in Jesus, you have new life. And you do not have to be who you once were, and you do not have to follow the habits that you once followed, and you do not have to live for what you once, what you once lived for. It died with Jesus at the cross. Let it stay dead. And choose to live every single day and every single moment of your life in the new life that Jesus has brought out of the grave for you. Choose to live every moment of your life in the resurrection new life that Jesus has made available to you. Jesus, perfect Jesus, got what sin pe sinful people deserve so that sinful people can get what perfect Jesus deserves. Jesus took what we deserve from God so that we can live in and experience what perfect Jesus deserves. He deserves life forever, and we have it because of him. He deserves righteousness. He is in right, right standing with God, and because of him, so are we. He has access to the Father, and because of him, so do we. This is what we call substitutionary atonement, that Jesus paid the price that we deserve so we could have what Jesus earned with his life and with his connection with the Father, and now we have it too. Because Jesus paid a price for you, you get what Jesus gets. When he died, he brought you new life. When he died, he paid the price for your sins. When he died, he brought you, bought your righteousness. When he died, he bought you access to, the, to your heavenly father. And when he died, he brought you new life. And that is incredibly good news. Why did Jesus have to die? Jesus had to die to pay the price for you, to be the substitute for you so that you could be given righteousness, so that you could be given access, and so that you could be given new life. That's good news. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for Jesus. 
Thank you for what Jesus did for us on the cross. Thank you that he brought, that he bought our righteousness, that he bought our access to you, that he bought our new life with you, that we can know you and have a relationship with you because Jesus served as our substitute and he paid the debt that we owed and he took the penalty that we, that we deserve to pay. And he took all of that so that we could receive from you what you long for us to have all along. And that we get what Jesus deserves because Jesus took what we deserve so that you could have what you deserved and what you desired for all along. So God, today, help us to trust in what Jesus has done for us. Help us to live out of what Jesus has, has, has done for us and help us to live into what Jesus made available for us. Help us to live in right standing with you. Help us to live in, in, in taking advantage of the access that we have to you. And God, help us to live in the new life that we have in you with all of the old having passed away and living and standing in the new life that you have brought, brought for us through Jesus. So God, today we just declare that we love you. We're grateful for Jesus and we wanna live in what Jesus has made available to us. Help us to do that. We love you, God. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.